Passover, everybody. Good morning, everybody. Great to see you. Hey, well, welcome all of our campuses. Those of you who might be joining us online as well, man, welcome to Lake Point. So glad you're hanging out with us this weekend. My name is Mike Bro. in case we've never met before, and I get to be on the teaching team here, and it's just one of the honors and highlights of my life to get to, to, get to do this. And uh, we are in week two of a little series we're calling Shoes. And during the series, actually next week, we're collecting shoes, bringing bring in shoes next week to distribute to kids in needs. We're going to do that through our partners, so don't forget to uh, bring, bring some shoes and socks uh, next week, and we're just going to give those away and bless a whole uh, bunch of people. And what we're doing on the weekend is every weekend, we're also stepping into the shoes of different people uh, who encountered Jesus one-on-one. And uh, last week, uh, we, we, we slipped on a pair of stilettos. Well, actually, I didn't wear them, uh, much, much to the disappointment of our team. Um, but we saw Jesus stoop down in the dirt to, to meet this broken and used woman, and he lovingly wipes her shame away. It is, if you missed it, check it out online. Such a powerful story of God's unconditional love uh, for you and me. Next weekend is Father's Day, and we're going to pull on an old pair of work boots, and I cannot wait for you to meet the guy we're going to talk about next week. Then in week four, uh, we're going to put on, we're going to like tape our ankles and put on a pair of football cleats, and I uh, want you to be, that, be there for that as well. But today, we're going to go a little more formal, and we're going to try on a pair of these shiny classics. And before we slip them on, let me, let me just ask you, how did you sleep last night? You got to sleep good last night? You, you, ever, you ever have just one of those nights where you just cannot go to sleep? You're tossing and turning and, you know, maybe it's heartburn or maybe it's your bladder or maybe it's that restless leg syndrome or maybe the video game you were playing right before you went to bed that's still playing on the back of your eyelids. I heard about a guy talking about uh, how he was having trouble sleeping and his buddy said, you need to try memory foam. He said, memory foam, that's my problem. I need to pretend that never happened foam is what I need. But your mind gets full of stuff, right? Memories and, and, and to-do lists and all kinds of thoughts. Your mind gets racing. You ever just have one of those nights where you just can't shut it down? Well, there's this guy. His, his name is Nicodemus. And he seemed to be having like one of those nights, tossing and turning, uh, counting sheep, drinking warm glasses of milk, down in melatonin gummies, uh, none of it seemed to calm his thoughts that were racing through his mind. And I don't know if he goes to see Jesus at night because it was the only time that Jesus could fit him into his very busy schedule. That's uh, very doubtful. And I don't know if Nicodemus goes to see Jesus at night because he was afraid to be seen with him in broad daylight. That's highly probable. But what I do know is this guy had questions, questions that would not let him rest. Another thing I know about this dude, Nicodemus, is that no one referred to him as dude. Uh, he was not a flip-flop wearing surfer dude kind of guy. He didn't own a pair of cowboy boots or loafers, Vans, Chucks, Crocs, or Jordans. He was all business. He was not even business casual. He was a button-down, classic, wingtip-wearing kind of guy. He was polished. He had that professorial, uh, academic, I'm so much smarter than you look. And the thing is, he probably was. He also possessed a very impressive uh, pedigree. His grandfather was a Jewish ambassador, the Roman Emperor Pompey. His dad was a celebrated and decorated war general. His name, Nicodemus, even means victory for the people. So a lot was expected of this guy. 
since the day he was born. Now, how many of you have a nickname? Anybody got a nickname? Uh, Some nicknames are flattering, right? Some are not so much. And I've had had a few of each through my life. But for the most part, people just call me bro. I mean, that is my last name, but it's kind of stuck as a nickname. Most everybody just calls me bro. My daughter Jody, to her friends and family, we call her Joe. My son Derek, we call him D. Uh, Maybe you're a William, but you go by Bill. Or maybe you're a Samantha, but you go by Sam. So I thought it'd be simpler if we would just refer to Nicodemus as Nick for short during this talk. Then I got thinking, he's not a Nick for short kind of guy. So we're just going to stick with calling him the formal name Nicodemus. And I'm guessing that it was his background, his heritage, his success, his wealth, his intellectual prowess that made him so easily accepted into the exclusive religious country club known as the Pharisees. You've heard of these guys? There were some 6,000 of these elitists back in Jesus' day, and they were supposed to be very, very strict observers of the law of God, as well as their own man-made laws, which, as you might guess, superseded God's laws most of the time. They had taken the original Ten Commandments and added like 600 of their own commandments. And most of these guys became masters of twisting God's Word to justify their own lifestyle, while at the same time piling guilt on the common people for religiously underachieving. They were the ones we met last week who used this this poor woman, just threw her down in the dirt in front of Jesus. They were racist. They were judgmental. They were power hungry. They were intimidating. And tragically, because they were seen as representatives of God, that's the way people begin to view God. So enter Jesus. I said it last week, I've said it a few times around here, but Jesus did not come only to lay down his life for our sin. Don't get me wrong, that's a huge deal. But he also came to show us what God is really like. And as Jesus moved among the people, all kinds of people, no matter what kind of shoes they happened to be in, as he reached out and touched and healed and loved broken people, diseased people, unwanted people, the forgotten of society, the ones who were labeled by the Pharisees as quote-unquote notorious sinners, Jesus blew away their misperceptions of God. You see, no matter what kind of label people may have tried to attach to you through your life, Jesus only puts one label on all people priceless. Now, not only was Nicodemus a member of the Pharisees, he was also a part of the inner circle known as the Sanhedrin. There were 70 of the sharpest uh, Jewish intellectuals that were chosen to rule spiritually and somewhat politically over the entire Jewish nation. Uh, They were the most powerful and influential leaders of that day. So, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus this night, He comes as a very significant leader, this intellectual Old Testament scholar. But most of all, he comes as a man whose restless thoughts would not let him go to sleep. Now, we're going to be in John chapter 3 today. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, New Testament part of the Bible. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to that. If you've got an app that you use, you you can dial that in. We're going to put it on the screens as well so we can all track along together. But this is how the story begins in John chapter 3. There was a man named Nicodemus a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Now, a couple of things jumped out at me when I read those two verses. First of all, I think it's kind of cool that Nicodemus refers to Jesus as rabbi. You see, Jesus really didn't have all the 
credentials necessary in his day to be officially honored, at least by the Pharisees, with, with such a distinguished title. He had no formal seminary training. He wasn't a long-term disciple of another rabbi. He had no internship, no degree, no master of divinity, no PhD, no PhD. He was just this simple carpenter from Nazareth who just happened to teach with authority like no one people had ever heard before. So, Nicodemus, I think, is cool. He addresses him with this title of respect. And then notice how he said, we all know, we all know that God has sent you to teach us your miraculous signs or evidence that God is with you. I was taken back by not only Nicodemus' admission that the miracles that Jesus was doing proved that he was from God, but also the use of the word we. Because it makes it seem like he wasn't the only one not sleeping well. Others in his group had questions too. Others were curious too. Others were intrigued. Others began to wonder, what if this guy really is from God? I mean, maybe John the Baptist was right when he said, look, there's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So Nicodemus, in using the plural here, is saying, you know, some of the guys are wondering. But he's the only one that had the courage to actually meet Jesus one-on-one. And you know, I think Jesus respected that about Nicodemus. Because you need to know God is always honored, even embrace skeptics, seekers, doubters. I mean, God is always open to honest dialogue. And you need to know, like, if that's where you're at right now, God wants to hear your questions. He invites you to ask and dig and research and probe and push back and experience. Because anybody who humbly just cracks the door to the possibility that God might be real, he'll show up and help you find your answers. Because God loves honesty. He loves skeptics. He loves doubters. He he loves you. He even says, if you seek me with all your heart, you'll find me. And and I've learned that it really is like a head and a heart thing. It's been my experience that sometimes, sometimes, people who construct this intellectual argument for the belief that God does not exist— a lot of times they're really just building a wall of intellectualism around a heart that's been wounded somewhere along the way. And if they would just get honest with that and get vulnerable enough to open up their heart and risk experiencing God at the core of their emotional being, while at the same time engaging their mind and weighing all the evidence, then small seeds of faith get planted and a light starts to come on and God becomes very, very real. And I'm just guessing that maybe God's been longing for some honest dialogue with some of you. And I'm just telling from my own personal experience, he really does want to satisfy your head and your heart. Now, I've often wondered what this scene looked like. Like if Jesus and Nicodemus are sitting on an outdoor patio with a lamp or a candle between them, or they're they're maybe, you know, sharing a cup of coffee, maybe they're eating a piece of pie, it would be key lime because it's the best kind of pie. I'm just throwing that out there for people that like to give pastors gifts and stuff. Uh, Or or maybe maybe they're like, maybe they're in a secluded forest and they get their hoods pulled up, kind of covering their identity. Or maybe they're standing on a rooftop overlooking the, the city with no lights other than the stars up in the sky, whatever the setting is. One thing is certain, it is late and it is dark. And Nicodemus comes for some honest dialogue. He just doesn't know how honest Jesus is going to get. Because before Nicodemus even has a chance to ask a question, Jesus starts answering. 
And I say answering because he already knows exactly what Nicodemus is thinking. He already knows his doubts. He already knows his intellectual hangups. He already knows that Nicodemus wants to ask, are you the promised Messiah? I mean, if not, like, who are you? And where did you come from? He knows that's what Nicodemus wants to ask. But that isn't necessarily what Nicodemus needs to hear. So Jesus completely rocks his world by saying this, I tell you the truth, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You see, Nicodemus, the issue is not so much who I am and where I came from. The issue is who you are and where you're going. How's that for an icebreaker? I mean, Jesus wanted to take this conversation to a deeper level right off the bat. He could have gone through all the small talk that we do, you know, about the weather. And you think the Cowboys are going to make a push for the Super Bowl this year. Can you believe the price of gas? All that kind of stuff. Jesus doesn't do any of that stuff. He just lovingly goes way below the surface with one of his famous, what the heck does that mean statements? Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. To which Nicodemus responds, what the heck does that mean? Come on. How how can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? I think that Nicodemus is totally smiling when he says that. He goes, come on, you're talking to a 70-year-old Old Testament professor. Uh, Get serious here. I came out here tonight because I really have some serious intellectual questions that I would like to ask you, such as, Jesus cuts him off. He says, oh, 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 I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. See, humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life, real life. So don't be surprised when I say, you must be born again. I think Jesus is totally smiling back at him. He says, Nicodemus, you're, you're a respected Jewish teacher. And, and, and yet you don't understand these things. Now, the phrase that Jesus uses, born again, literally translates born from above, a heavenly birth or a spiritual rebirth. And this concept of rebirth, God's plan to give men and women a brand new heart, a new life, eternal life, was clearly revealed all throughout the Old Testament. For instance, when he talks here about the water and the spirit, Jesus is alluding to a passage that Nicodemus would be very, very familiar with. It was in Ezekiel chapter 36, where God promises to wash his people with water, to purify them from their cancerous, life-threatening sin condition, and replace their heart of stone with his very own heart. And I think that Jesus is lovingly saying to Nicodemus, come on, you, you know there's something more, don't you? You know it in your head. You know it in your heart. That's why you're here tonight. And I know the teachers can teach things for years and never really grasp what they mean. But think it through. Since you are a very respected Old Testament scholar, you know the Scriptures. You know that God has always wanted to replace your heart with a new one. You know that God has always desired an intimate relationship with you. You know that God will send the Messiah to make a way for all people to be saved. You know that mere religion is just a dead-end street, one you've been running up and down your whole life. And man, you've been running hard, Nicodemus, trying to earn God's favor. And now you're sensing it doesn't work that way. I have a feeling you know that there is this personal, transformational, born-from-above relationship with God that can change everything in a person's life. And I think that's why you're here today. You sense it in me. 
You just don't know how to get it. You see, all Nicodemus knew up to this point in his life was religion. Rituals, tradition, rules on top of rules, trying to do enough good stuff to get noticed by God and other people and not necessarily in that order because that's what religion does to you. It gets you showing off. It gets you running, gets you performing, gets you striving, you're motivated with guilt and, and, and approval seeking. And there is no finish line in sight. You have no, no idea if you've been good enough. You have no idea if you've run far enough or fast enough. So you either run till it just about kills you or you just give up and you walk away. And I think Nicodemus was tired of running. I think he's growing weary of pretending to know God when he didn't. And that's exactly where I was when I met Jesus. I grew up in church, and I'm guessing some of you did as well. I just got so tired of faking it. I got tired of playing games with God. I got tired of living two lives. One foot in the light, one foot in the darkness, pretending to be whoever I need to be with whoever I was with. It's hard enough to live one life, right? Living two is almost impossible. Some of us became weary of religious rituals and man-made rules that just would like suck the life out of you and made you actually want to know God less. So we walked away and we gave up on religion. We said, I will never set foot in a church ever again. And then we met Jesus. And we found him saying, come to me. It's a relationship with God that you're thirsty for. It's why, why you were made. I'll give you living water. You must be born again because eternal life is real. And it's found in me. I can remember reading a Rolling Stone magazine interview a few years back with an actor. And I always get, I always get mistaken for this actor. I can't tell you how many times people have come up to me and said, excuse me, aren't you Brad Pitt? This is what he... <laughs> This is what he says. He said, man, I know all these things are supposed to seem important to us. The cars, the condo, our version of success. But if that's the case, why is the general feeling out there reflecting more impotence and isolation and desperation and loneliness? If you ask me, I say, toss all this. We got to find something else. I don't have those answers yet. The emphasis now is on success and personal gain. I'm the guy who's got everything. I'm sitting in it. And I'm telling you, this is not it. And I think Nicodemus is right there. I think that this smart, powerful, wealthy guy feels the emptiness of life. He's weary of the treadmill of religious performance that he was running on. And I think he senses in Jesus some hope of a real relationship with God. And deep down, he knew that Jesus had the answer for that. And that's why he's here on this night. And Jesus knows it. So Jesus, he stays with this, your respected Old Testament scholar approach by going back again to a story that Nicodemus would be familiar with. And I love the way Jesus was always doing that. He always tried to find little connecting points with the crowd, whoever he was talking to. He tried to find a way to help them get it, to help them understand it. He still does that because he recognizes our uniqueness in the way that God might speak uniquely to us. And in this moment, he's genuinely trying to reach this guy in a way that he uniquely can understand. He says this, no one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the son of man, a term that Jesus used for himself, has come down from heaven. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. So Jesus says, listen, Nick, can I call you Nick? 
Okay, Nicodemus, if you recall, this reference is from the Old Testament book of Numbers, where the people of God had left Egypt, and they were in the desert, and they turned their back on God for like the millionth time. They flaunted their rebellion in his face for like the millionth time. They took his goodness for granted for like the millionth time. And as a real attention getter, God sends all these snakes. You remember that story, Nicodemus? You, you, you probably, probably even taught it in one of, one of your classes. Do you remember how God instructed Moses to lift up a bronze snake on a pole? And he told him, anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. Remember the story? And even though Nicodemus can't see it yet, Jesus is saying there's a day coming very, very soon where I will be lifted up on a pole, on a cross. And anyone and everyone who looks to me will not only be saved from the snake bite of sin, but they will live forever. And just to make sure Nicodemus really understands this, Jesus puts his hands on his shoulders, leans in, and says probably the most famous words of the entire Bible. He says, Nicodemus, for God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but to save the world through him. We've all seen people holding up a John 3.16 sign in the end zone of a ball game, right? And people wear John 3.16 emblazoned on a, like a, a pendant necklace. Some, some people will get, you know, John 3.16 tattooed on their shoulder somewhere. You, you've seen that, right? John 3.16 before. Now you know what John 3.16 says. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Gang, that's incredible good news for anybody who believes. And here's what I think is so cool. Nicodemus is the only one who actually heard those words come out of Jesus' mouth. Jesus didn't say, let me refer you to John 3.16. There was no John 3.16. On this dark night, hanging secretly in the shadows, Jesus loves this guy enough to give him personally the most famous words of light and life. It had to rock his world. There are four different books all about Jesus' life in the New Testament. They're called the Gospels, uh, which just means the good news. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it's interesting to me that only John's Gospel mentions Nicodemus. And he does it three different times. John, John writes in the last chapter of, of his gospel, he says something like, man, I'm just scratching the surface here. I'm telling you, Jesus did so many things. I couldn't write them all down. I, I, in fact, if they were all written down, I suppose the whole world wouldn't have enough room to contain all the books that could be written about all the amazing stuff that Jesus did. So out of all the other things that John could have included, I think it's significant that he includes this story of this intellectual seeker's journey of faith. Look for a moment over in John chapter 7. About a year has passed since Nicodemus left his late night conversation with Jesus. And by this time, the debates about Jesus' identity are really starting to heat up. Uh, most of the members of the Sanhedrin, they hate Jesus. They want him dead. They've had enough of his teachings. They've had enough of his miracles. They've had enough of his popularity with the people. They've had enough of his pointed comments toward them. So they send these guards to arrest Jesus. 
Well, the guards come back empty-handed, and the members of the Sanhedrin get ticked, and they ask them, why didn't you arrest him? And I love the way they respond. They say, well, because we never heard anybody talk like that guy. In other words, if you want him, you go get him, because we think this guy, Jesus, is the real deal. It's so cool. Well, the Pharisees climb all over these guys saying that they've been deceived like every other dim-witted loser in Judea. And this big heated argument breaks out among the Sanhedrin. And then one of their own, guess who, stands up. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he's doing? You see, Nicodemus had been with Jesus. He had heard those words. He had sensed something different. He had been one-on-one with goodness. He had looked into the eyes of grace and truth. He experienced hope in his presence. So he uses his respected position in the Sanhedrin to say, hang on a minute. Are you men going to jump to conclusions and condemn someone without really taking the time to examine the evidence? This is so cool to me that his doubt has now turned into defense. Going secretly at night has now turned into public association by day. Private conversation has now turned into public debate. I'm still amazed that our friend Lee Strobel spoke here about a year ago, how he moved from doubt to defense. You might remember that Lee was a self-proclaimed atheist uh, when he worked for the Chicago Tribune. He won all kinds of awards for investigative journaling, uh, he, he, journalism. Uh, he was a, uh, an evidence guy, a cold case kind of guy, wrote a lot of cool stuff. Well, his marriage w- wasn't going well. And his wife started going to church because she knew there had to be something more to life. And he began to notice changes in her. And that started him on a quest to find out whether all this Jesus stuff was true or not. And Lee reasoned, I guess I can't condemn the guy without first examining the evidence. And Lee writes this, all I had given the evidence was a cursory look. I had read just enough philosophy and history to find support for my skepticism, a fact here, a scientific theory there, a a pithy quote, a clever argument. Sure, I could see some gaps and inconsistencies, but I had a strong motivation to ignore them, a self-serving and immoral lifestyle that I would be compelled to abandon if I were ever to change my views and become a follower of Jesus. As far as I was concerned, the case was closed. There was enough proof for me to rest easy with the conclusion that the divinity of Jesus was nothing more than the fanciful invention of superstitious people. Or so I thought. Lee writes those words in his amazing bestseller called The Case for Christ, where he offers up a thorough and compelling defense for the person of Jesus. I would encourage you to read it. It is unbelievably good. Lee moved from doubter to defender to a fully devoted follower of Jesus. And that was Nicodemus' path. There's a third time that John mentions him. It's in chapter 19, right after the crucifixion of Jesus. And to me, it's one of the most moving passages in the Bible. It says this, afterward, Joseph of Arimathea who had been a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders because he was afraid of guys like Nicodemus, he asked Pilate, the Roman governor, for permission to take down Jesus' body. When Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and took the body away. And with him came Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night. 
He brought 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes. Following Jewish burial custom, they wrapped Jesus' body with the spices in long sheets of linen cloth. Two powerful guys, once hiding, hiding from God, hiding from each other, now together at the cross of Jesus. The cross does that to people you know. Ground is level there. And think about what was at stake for rule-keeping Nicodemus in this moment. Both men, by handling a dead body, had now defiled themselves for the Passover, and no true Pharisee would ever, ever do that for any reason. And to top it off, the dead body was Jesus, the one his fraternity had just crucified. He would have been kicked out of the group, ostracized, and lost everything. And not only that, Nicodemus makes this huge financial investment as well. You might remember a story about a woman who anoints Jesus with a, with a bottle of perfume. And it says this little bottle of perfume, the contents of that vase were worth a year's wages. That's expensive perfume. Nicodemus brings 75 pounds of it. 75 pounds of super expensive spices, including uh, primarily myrrh, because that's how they would embalm the body back in the day. But, but this was more than that, though. This was this extravagant expression of gratitude and love and deep, deep respect and devotion. Nicodemus, this intellectual skeptic who had arranged a secret meeting at night, had moved from doubt to defense to full devotion. And I just wonder, as he stood at the foot of the cross, looking at the lifeless body of Jesus, I wonder if you heard those words from his late night encounter when Jesus said, the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. As Nicodemus helped pry the nails from between Jesus' wrist bones and ankle bones, I wonder if his mind was swirling with the thoughts of, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. As Nicodemus began to wash Jesus' blood-drenched body with water, I wonder if he could hear those first words that Jesus ever said to him. I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the Spirit. As he wrapped the body in spices and linen, I wonder if he thought back to when Jesus went way below his surface questions and seemed to speak right to his heart. Nicodemus, the issue isn't where I came from. The issue is, where are you going? And it seems to me that Nicodemus settled that issue in his life. The question is, have you? This uh, past week, um, we lost Anna Myers, one of our worship leaders at the Forney campus, uh, 22 years old, a tragic car accident. Um, I've, I've never met her, but I heard that she was a beautiful soul, just a light. And uh, she's got an awesome family. And also heard that the uh, celebration of life services was extremely moving. And since, since I've heard about it, we've been praying for the family or friends, the entire Forney campus, because we're all in this together as a Lake Point family. And, and the reason there was a celebration of her life is because she knew and embraced these words of Jesus. 
She believed, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes should not perish but have everlasting life. So Anna lives on. I, I really look forward to meeting her someday in heaven. And I'd love to see you there too. That's why I'm asking, where are you at in all this? I don't know, maybe you find yourself in Nicodemus' shoes. What are the next steps you need to take? I mean, honestly, what are, what are some questions you have? Ask them. Read, listen, dig, examine the evidence, push back. It's a safe place to do all of that. There's a lot of people here who are just exactly where you're at right now. And they would love to help you on this journey. You can go to Next Steps. You can just text NEXT to 20411. Say, I'd like to go to Next Steps and, and learn more. Or, or maybe, maybe you've settled most of the questions, but you've never really invited Jesus to come into your life. Maybe you've just been doing the religion thing, just showing up at church. Or maybe it's time for you to say, no, I, I want to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus. I want him to forgive my sin. I want him to give me a new heart. I want him to give me eternal life. I want to be born again. You can do that, like right now. You can be born of the water and the Spirit. You, you can go down in the waters of baptism like we've seen people do. And you can just die to the old you. You can let him wash you clean and just give you a brand new life. So wherever you're at, I just want to encourage you, even challenge you, to make this like a front burner issue in your life. Because we don't know how long we're here. I want to challenge you to do what Nicodemus did. Step away from the crowd and just get one-on-one -on -one with Jesus. Get face-to-face -face with Jesus. And I want to give you a chance to actually do that right now. So just, just bow your heads for just a few moments and let's just encounter God for a little bit. I've been praying all week long that you would hear Jesus speak those words to you. For God so loved you that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. To believe is more than just like intellectual assent that Jesus is God. It means that we actually put our trust and our confidence in Him, that He alone can save us. It's to put Jesus Christ in charge of our present plans, of our, of our eternal destiny. It's, believing is, is both trusting his words is reliable. And then every day, just relying on his power to, to change a little each day. So if you've never trusted Christ, would you let this promise that he gave Nicodemus, this promise of everlasting life be yours? Just believe. Like, like, like last week, maybe just pray, pray a simple prayer, just your own words, nothing scripted, nothing ritualistic, nothing formulaic, just... Jesus, I want, I want you in my life. I want to follow you. I want you to be the forgiver of my sin. I want you to wipe away my shame and my guilt and my fears. And I need help with an addiction. I need, I need help with direction. I, I want my past to be the past. I want to know that when I die, whenever that day is, that I'll just keep living. Because I'll be with you because you promised that. Father, I, uh, I thank you that we can come to you and just with simple faith, 
We don't have to be doing this for a long time. Just come with our doubts and questions and go, I'm, I'm just willing to believe. I might not be there yet, but I, I'm willing to believe. And you take that little piece of willingness and you kind of start moving into that crack in the door and it starts to widen. And we start to experience you and we know that we were made for this purpose to do life with you. And I, and I thank you for people that are going to experience that right in this moment. To know that for God so loved them. Thank you. I thank you that when those words were first spoken, it was deeply personal to one guy. And now it's deeply personal to a lot of people. Thank you, God, for uh, having John include this story. Because there's a lot of things he could have written down. But you knew that we needed to hear a story like this. Because a lot of us go on this same journey. And I thank you for putting it in the pages of your book. And I pray we'd stamp it in our heart and know there's hope for everybody. So, Jesus, thank you for who you are. And uh, thank you for letting us get to know you better today. And I pray all this in your name. Amen.